0: So this morning we look to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 to 10. And I wanted to read uh, verses 8 to 15 just to set a context for us in 1 Corinthians 12. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible translation. and, uh, And then we'll explain what it says. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit and to another, the word of knowledge according to the same spirit, to another faith by the same spirit and to another gifts of healing by the one spirit and to another, the effecting of miracles and to another prophecy and to another, the distinguishing of spirits to another various kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. But one in the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. For even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body. So also is Christ for by one spirit. We are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. May God bless the reading of his word. Uh, We looked this morning specifically to continue our understanding of what are the spiritual gifts. And today we'll be looking at wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, and miracles. I'll repeat that again. Today we'll be looking at wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, and miracles. I think the best way to look at these gifts is to treat them as individually as possible, but also to help us understand how they work together in the life of the church, especially in the historical context. Uh, and then the next time we're together, we'll proceed through the gifts that are established in verse 10 and discuss what they mean. Paul puts great emphasis on his explanation of prophecy and tongues or languages. And so we'll look at those as well and then begin our discussion on what, which gifts are prevalent in the life of the church and why are they prevalent in the life of the church and which gifts have given way to things that are already established and fulfilled. So we'll examine that together. But I want us to focus on the words of wisdom, the words of knowledge, the gift of faith, the gift of healing and of miracles. And there are two key points to consider as Paul began to explain what the spiritual gifts were. Two key points that I want you to think about as we look at all the spiritual gifts. But uh, certainly I'll introduce a third point just because I believe it captures the first two. First, what he wants us to consider, and I'm getting this from the very beginning of this chapter, that they are operated through the spirit, through the spirit of God. So the gifts, as we understand them, the spiritual gifts are operated through the spirit of God. So he is the agency by which the gifts function. And then second, they are given by the Holy Spirit. So I know that sounds similar, but if you think about it, when the gifts are in operation, it is the spirit that is operating the gifts within the people in the life of the church for the benefit of each other. So the spirit is the one who operates the gifts through the individuals who are practicing the gifts. And then the, the spirit is the one who is the source of the gifts, not only in their operation, but he's the one who distributes the gift uh, or the gifts. Lastly, and this is more of a logical statement that I think is both theological and divine truth. But if you think about those two points, then you come to this conclusion. Lastly, they do not run the gifts. They do not run counter to the nature of the Holy Spirit. It would then stand to reason if he's the one who operates the gifts and if he's the one who gives the gifts of the spirit, then he would be the one to ensure that those gifts Do not assault the person of Christ. Do not assault the church and do not run counter to God's nature because the Holy Spirit is God. And so we have to understand that as we look through the spiritual gifts, that the gifts themselves are not something that would run counter to the spirit of truth, to the nature of God and to the works of God overall. So, I believe that that's what would temper our understanding as we begin to approach these gifts and understand how these gifts function or function in the life of the church during Corinth. But Paul gets right to it, he gets into it, and I want to just back up a little bit before we jump into verse 8. In verse 7, he tells us essentially uh, why the gifts are given. And how the gifts are given, and he gives us purpose, purpose that drives the gifts. Verse 7, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. So each individual receives a manifestation of the Spirit. What that simply means is that the gift's on display. So when the Spirit distributes the gifts, the gifts are then on display, and they are shown to individuals uh, upon whom are affected by the use and practice of those gifts. But then he also says, for the common good. Now, we talked about how that's not just good in the charitable sense or philanthropic sense, but it's divine good. But if you really look closely at what he means there, it is to also say for the benefit. There is a benefit for those, a blessing for those who encounter the gifts and for those who are uh, receiving the gifts and practicing them. There's a mutual benefit. Benefit. It speaks to the effect that it has upon us within the confines of God's decrees. So then it stands to reason that the gifts do not run contrary to God's decrees. They don't run contrary to God's decrees. So the gifts are practiced very specifically in the first historical context of Corinthians, but very specifically as it relates to God's actual decrees and we'll see that as we begin to move through how the spirit works in the life of the church through his gifts he then explained to the Corinthians as I've said before the gifts uh, that are distributed specifically and we start with the gift of wisdom more than why more than uh, wise sayings or timely things to say because that is what Paul invokes in Ephesians 4 I believe it's verse 29. Words that are for the need of the moment, but that is in the arena of encouraging of the practical use of the mouth uh, to bring about encouragement and timeliness and exhortation uh, when it's necessary uh, to understand one's place as we're interfacing with one another in the body of Christ. But more than wise sayings, including wise sayings, but more than wise sayings or timely things to say the gift of wisdom are in line with those divine insights and application related to knowledge. So you'll see that this gift is certainly related to the word of knowledge because he says, for to one is given the word of wisdom and then he tells you how it's given and how it's practiced through the spirit, through the spirit that tells you how it's given and how it's practiced. So then related to the gift of knowledge it is certainly the application of that knowledge both of these being given by the spirit were to exalt christ they were to exalt christ and build up the believers and therefore the consequence would be and the implication would be to build up His church the word of wisdom was not simply philosophical rhetoric it was not simply the ability To communicate well or to use words that cause people to be emotionally satisfied and stimulated. But it was the application to divine truth. Therefore, we now define the use of knowledge, the word of knowledge. Whereas knowledge or the word of knowledge, if you look at it in relationship to the word of wisdom, was certainly related to wisdom. Because knowledge is the giving of specific divine truth to inform the wisdom needed to apply that truth. I'm going to repeat that for you. The word of knowledge is the giving of specific divine truth, not just proclamation of truth in the general sense, but proclamation of applicable truth that causes you to have to move forward into wisdom in a very specific case. And so you have the word of knowledge is the giving of specific divine truth to inform the wisdom needed to apply that truth. As I've said, it's not simply knowledge in a generic sense or in a general sense, but as a gift by the spirit. It was knowledge that was in line with God's truth, God's decree specifically related to his church, because that's how it functions. So that already disqualifies everybody who's not a part of his church, because how could they give you a word of knowledge and word of wisdom that's not in line with the church and be functioning using a gift? How can they speak knowledgeable things that have nothing to do with God's actual decrees, especially in the context of Corinthians? Because I don't want that to escape your notice as we work through these gifts. Paul is speaking specifically to the Corinthians and our task is to figure out our place related to the Corinthians. So you have knowledge that's in line with God's truth, but not just his truth in the generic sense decrees for his church and the people in his church. And first and specifically the people of Corinth, how do they move forward as citizens of his kingdom? And the word of knowledge and the word of wisdom helps them to move forward in that context and do what God has called them specifically to do. But that's how the gift would function as it functions, even in line with the churches that it has functioned. We make no assumptions that all the gifts are operative because we do not distribute the gifts. So the Holy Spirit distributes the gifts and he makes them operative and it's apparent when they're operative meaning we know when they're at work we don't have to guess about the gifts we don't have to pretend that the gifts and we'll find this with all the other ones that we'll speak of we don't have to pretend they're functioning or do something that's not necessarily related to divine truth but it may look like what we may think the gift looks like we don't have to do those things because they're actual And they function in a way where there is a recognition that that gift is functioning. You can identify it. And so you have the word of knowledge and the word of wisdom not distributed to all, not distributed to all churches at all times, as is what we would say about all these gifts. But many of the gifts were functioning in the church because Paul is writing that that was the case. This verse certainly implies also the timeliness of these two gifts as it relates to the church, meaning that it was something that was said that was timely to the churches, could be tested and verified and applied. And therefore, the action that then took place would relate to what God uh, will for the people. So then the verse implies, what you'll see with some of the other gifts, that they both could certainly work together. That these gifts would work together. And I believe that that's what God willed for many of these gifts, that they work together. Okay. But then if you look at verse nine to another person, another gift is received. So Paul is not speaking of a scenario or situation where one person possesses all of the gifts. Or that it is our divine right and divine claim for everyone to say that they have this gift. And if not, you're a lesser Christian. Because people who are making those statements do not control the gifts that are given. So why would you tell people that they can have all the gifts when you're not the one responsible for distributing the gifts? Well, my point is here to the other gift that is named in verse 9. This other gift that's received, it says to another... Faith. And Paul keeps saying by the same Spirit. If you look at your Bible there, he keeps saying through the Spirit, he keeps bringing up the Spirit, and he keeps saying by the Spirit, by the same Spirit, by the one Spirit. Verse 11, the same Spirit. Verse 9, one Spirit. Verse 8, according to the same Spirit. What do you think he's trying to communicate? He's trying to communicate that the same Spirit is working in and through all the gifts. To bring about the same conclusion. The same result. He's giving you source and purpose. So here you have another gift that's received. But understand as I've said. The gifts all work together. I like to keep zooming us in so to speak. And zooming us out. All the gifts work together. Within a variety of services. Ministries. And to different persons who are believers. And I'm speaking primarily of the historical context. I haven't jumped to the modern context yet. I'll jump back and forth. But as we look at this, as we examine this, different persons are receiving different gifts in different contexts. And those gifts have different effects, but all the effects relate to God's will, God's person, God's works, God's decrees. They all promote blessing, but blessing in different ways. What you see so far in verses eight and nine, as I've said, the same spirit is distributing the gifts and and then ensuring the gifts operate in agreement with the purpose for which they are given. So you have the gift of faith. Now, as I've said, this is not, again, faith in the most generic sense, the evidence of things hoped for. This is essentially faith as a gift in a specific, very specific sense. So all the gifts have a very specific sense to them. This is the gift of faith pertaining to certain circumstances, whereby hope would otherwise be lost. Hope would otherwise be lost. So this is why it's important to know the historical context, because you're looking at a church in Corinth that if you really looked around, at what was happening in Corinth, there would, in the flesh, we would come to the conclusion, there's no hope. This thing cannot go on. We're overridden by secularism. Paul is challenged by a church that's divided. There's really no case in which we should be encouraged that this church could proceed as it does in that specific context. Now, I would say, as we think about how then does that apply to the time in which we find ourselves that we're looking at a situation where we could conclude in the American construct that the church is certainly at its most hopeless place. In the flesh, we would come to that conclusion. But by the spirit, we would say the church is forging on victoriously. And I would agree with that a thousand percent, that the church will not fail. But that is the sense in which this gift is given. And let me explain some features of it. It's not faith in the most generic sense. For all who belong to Christ possess faith, saving faith. This is the gift of faith pertaining to specific circumstances. Now, I've said it, whereby if we did not possess this gift or those who had this gift, hope would otherwise be lost. Hope would otherwise be lost. Yet, this gift is given by the Spirit. To bolster confidence and trust in God's divine plan. I'm not talking about people saying that they're doing God's plan and not achieving God's plan. I'm talking about the persistence in God's plan and the persistent trust in God's plan. And that is on display where hope would otherwise be lost in the darkest hour. Now. If we back up, you can always think about it this way. The church always appears to be in her darkest hour. The true church. She's always appearing to be in her darkest hour. And there's no shortage of individuals who are coming along and profiting off the fact that it appears like the church is in her darkest hour. And some of them are on one hand making money off that and some of them are perpetuating the reason for which they would conclude that the church is in her darkest hour. But if you really think about it, the church is never in her darkest hour. The church is always shining brightest because of who is her head, namely Jesus Christ. So, this is to bolster confidence and trust. Somebody steps forward and demonstrates, makes manifest because they're given this gift by the Spirit, that in specific circumstances they demonstrate by their actions. I believe there could be a verbal component to this gift. But by their actions and by a verbal component before the people to build them up, demonstrating that the church is not lost. That God's divine plan must and will go on. And they do not bring triumphalism apart from realism, meaning they don't say the church is victorious and then they're just saying positive things. But they demonstrate by their actions, they demonstrate by verbally i believe this is a proclamation element to to having the gift of faith they're demonstrating that hope is not lost and you become convinced because you have god's spirit working in you to receive this gift so i believe that this gift also bolsters confidence and trust in those who hear i believe that you see this gift even working in the apostles in fact if you really want an example of all of these gifts, you'll see at any given time in the New Testament, you'll see them working in the apostles. You'll see that as we look at the historical context, even of a Peter or Paul, who's in prison. Would you say Paul had the gift of faith? He's sitting in prison facing the end of his life by the time we reach the so named pastoral epistles. And once he gets there, he is. He is distributing instructions for the church to go on and he's hopeful and thankful. And I believe that he's looking ahead to our generation. So why would we lose hope in this generation if those before us were looking toward us in hope, not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is. I believe that's what this gift of faith accomplishes. It stirs up in us this confidence in Christ, not a confidence in a man. Not confidence in an institution, not confidence in politics, but confidence in Christ and such as it is his divine plan. Well, that means this gift is informed by God's divine plan. The divine plan specifically, listen to this, as it related to a circumstance. So things that were happening and happen in that contemporary context or set of circumstances that would naturally produce Hopelessness in us. And I think every day you wake up in the morning, you could be faced with hopelessness. You can be faced with hopelessness. There is no shortage of troubles in this world to give you hopelessness. But then you have faith in the most general but special and specific sense. And then I believe that there is the gift of faith, that there is the gift of faith. I don't have any reason to believe as we look at this particular gift, that in the sense that it would cease, that it has given way to something else. Because I believe in this context, the gift of faith certainly is needed every hour because of what that uh, what the church then faces concerning the use of the gift. So I'm convinced that the gift of faith in the most specific sense related to a specific set of circumstances related to bolstering people's hope and trust and confidence in Christ and to not only be able to articulate those things but to have it with conviction in your spirit and in your soul and then to be able to portray that or make that manifest to others that's by the spirit that's by the spirit I believe that gift is certainly operative uh, as it is very specific I believe that it's not simply our response, right, because this gift is distributed by the Spirit, but our response related to God's persuasion in us to proceed in full belief and trust, faithful and confidence in him, not ourselves. I can be very specific with this gift. As I was studying, I was I was really thinking very specifically I see it in the churches that are sound, that are faithful. I see this gift at work. And so I am convinced that this gift is at work. I'm convinced that this gift is at work in us. I'm I'm highly convinced of that. Because we have no reason to, to go on in the flesh. We have no reason. We are surrounded by things that would stir up within us, in and of ourselves, hopelessness. We're surrounded by it. It permeates every section of our lives. I'm talking about each one of us specifically. But yet we press on. Why? Is it because we're smart? Is it because we're so determined? No, it's because we're persuaded. We were giving something by the Spirit. Not just church in the generic sense. Because we quit. If we were just doing this for the church. I believe we have faith that was... Bolstered in us. And I'm not just talking about saving faith. I'm talking about saving faith plus the gift of faith that we're saying we must go on. We must go. on. We cannot stop. We are fully persuaded. I know who I have believed and that he is able to preserve me until that great day. As I paraphrase that. So I believe that this is not simply our response. I believe that we proceed in full belief and conviction, trust, faithful and confidence in him, not not ourselves. I believe that this gift is very much defined that way. And one of the simple ways to see, I mean, I recognize that, you know, people want to make all kind of conclusions and philosophical conclusions about which gifts have ceased and which gifts have continued. And I have very. Uh, Determine positions on those But I think it's simple You see the gift at work If you don't see the gift at work The gift is not operative It's very simple And the gift doesn't look like something else somewhere else The gift is evident It's made manifest Paul wants us to be aware of it And if you see it And you see it for what it is You then begin to recognize it's operative It's operative When we get to the other ones That are a little more controversial You'll see exactly what I'm saying The gift of faith, I believe, it is certainly operative. I'm not talking about faith for, you know, all the things that the gross word faith movement and other movements make of this. But I'm talking about a faith in God's divine plan, not just the ability to articulate it, because that doesn't even belong to us or to me. But it is to stir up in us that we must continue until the end of the age. I believe that God has left that to us. I believe that is why the gift proceeds as it is. Again, I'm not saying every person has that, but I'm saying I see that manifest within us. I see the gift of faith operative. Unless I'm very wrong, I see it. I can see it, and I'm encouraged by it. So then you have the gift of faith. This is confidence in him, faithfulness in him that's demonstrated, and it's not in ourselves. I see it operative. I don't see anything here that tells me we glory in ourselves, we boast in ourselves. But it is also, as we understand the gifts, working in the body of Christ one to another to both display and encourage others. We're lifting each other up and we're encouraging each other that we must go on. Sometimes the gift of faith is just strong presence. Sometimes it's words of encouragement that are tied to the gift of faith having the words of encouragement. But I believe this gift of faith is tied to so many other things. But I believe that a part of this gift, because each of these gifts are not just for ourselves, not just, well, I'm persuaded, you're not, and we'll just kind of not really talk about it. But no, this gift is the ability to both display and encourage others. As one possesses this gift of faith, you're spurring others onward toward the great goal, toward the prize of the heavenly kingdom and the heavenly one the holy one the supreme one jesus the christ and you're building each other up in god's decrees it's very specific you know it's why when we come to an understanding about what the church is and who is in the church if you're in a place and they're not putting before you what god's will and decrees are you can't exercise the gift of faith you can't be encouraged about what god is truly doing so then you have to make up what you think God is doing and then have people emotionally encouraged. But here you are encouraged. We are fully persuaded. If you possess this gift, you become fully persuaded in very specific areas of God's decrees and you fully persuade others that we must go on and we must go on victoriously and joyfully. It runs counter to our very nature. It runs counter. To, you're not stirring this up in yourself. This isn't self-motivation. This is the spirit giving you the trust and the confidence in a measure that is in line with the gift that's given to build up others. You're doing this as it seems, building them up in God's decrees and his divine will moment by moment, moment by moment. It's a part of even our sanctification, moment by moment. But it's also in the life of the church. So I believe that it is in line with what the church has in verse nine. You see, another gift is given. I'm going to explain what it means. And then we understand, well, how is it operative or how is it not operative? And I believe as we explain it, you'll start to come to some conclusions based on how it is explained and based on how it functions. But in verse nine, the same spirit, the same Holy Spirit has distributed specifically first in the historical context and then in the churches that proceed, I believe, until the apostolic age has concluded the gifts of healing, the gifts of healing. And when I was studying this, the nuances of the language, looking at the overall contextual picture of the gifts of healing in other contexts that it's presented, I was very surprised what I found. Not surprised because I found something new, but surprised I hadn't looked at this gift as closely. Because I've heard so often what this gift is not, that to study what this gift actually is was very refreshing. So many tell you what this gift is not, and so many, when they begin to define it, they define it falsely. So where you're left to is you have one side that defines the gifts of healing falsely, and then you have another side that's only – they only present what the gift is not. And so when I came to this section, I recognized I hadn't heard what is between. That is, I hadn't heard what the gift actually is. I just heard what it's not, and I heard those false teachers who come along and tell you what they think it is. So let's dive into the gifts of healing. It's the same spirit that gave the gift of healing. So in no way do we deny that the gift existed. We don't deny that. And the same spirit gave it for the same purposes as the other gifts. Well, then wouldn't it stand to reason that the gift is given today? We can't jump into that because that's not our determination to make our determination to make is to define what the gift is and then to see if it's made manifest in the time in which we find ourselves. We don't give the gifts. We don't pretend that the gift is operative. We define it. And if we see it, the spirit has distributed it. If we don't see it, the spirit has it in this particular context. But I'll tell you what this gift is. And if you even look at this and it's I'll encourage you to study this in its original context. I know we can do that here at our church and it's a blessing, but but I don't think you only need to do that. But I think you can look at this in its original context related to the languages and be fully convinced what this actually means. But I'll explain it to you. And then I encourage further study in it. Uh, the gift served the church and was given to another. Now, listen not every person so already the charismatic way of thinking the charismatic movement way of thinking related to this gift is already disqualified because it's not it's not a divine right for every single person it's not a higher level of sanctification that you would tap into this gift and then somehow now you have reached a higher echelon of christianity That's not what this gift proposes because not everyone possesses the gift. Paul says that outright. So if anyone's saying that everyone does, they're lying because Paul is speaking the truth and he's speaking the truth in the spirit. And I have to trust Paul because he is writing what the divine author would have him say. So the same spirit for the same purposes as the other gifts. So it's given to another, Paul says, Not all, not every person, but to another. But it is given for those to remedy ailments. Listen to this. To remedy ailments and provide cures for those ailments in the church. Well, don't people do that today? The answer is yes. But the answer is also they do that across secular society as well. This was specific to the church. And let's look at the historical context. It's specific to the churches in Asia Minor. We know that it was certainly expected to be operative amongst the Corinthians. It was expected amongst the Corinthians. So it was for those to remedy the ailments, to remedy the ailments. So what that means is it's not just diagnosis, it's cure. No one here is getting knocked or slapped on the head and made to fall down. This was remedy ailments and provide cures for those ailments in the church. If you look very closely at this gift of the spirit, listen to this. It was given by the spirit as a mercy toward the sick. It was given by the spirit as a mercy toward the sick. I can think about, and I think I may say it later, just looking down at my notes, but I can think about in that context, it's often good to say why when you're studying the Bible. And in that context, I'm thinking, why would that gift be necessary in that way toward the people? And I believe you have a people who are locked out of society in the early churches. You have a discompassionate society that not only did illness run rampant but illness was so rampant that it was only affordable for those who with partiality as the driving force of treatment it was only available to those who could afford it and by afford it i mean those who actually were among the upper echelon of society i think if we were to look at even history itself when a people get sick, and often sickness and death, because it is a product of the fall, it is not discriminatory. But I mean to say, if someone holds the cure, typically they're going to withhold the cure from those who they deem undesirable. And they will give the cure to those who they believe are desirable. In a sense, it's triaging men. It's triaging people. But I think in this context, what we look at is, This is then, by the Spirit, a mercy toward the sick in God's church. That he was distributing the gifts of healing to people to remedy ailments and cures. Now, as I've said, this is wisdom applied in the church context. Of medical practices, caring for those who are not well. Caring for those who are not well. This is not the outlandish practices of the charismatic movement. For one, in their teaching, they already promote the spirit of error. Some of the modern evangelical fringe charismatic thinking, they do the same. And almost when they get sick or somebody dies, they need to sweep it under the rug. But here, this isn't that. And I'll be honest, people are sick and they die because of what happens at the fall. So this gift does not remedy across the board what we see concerning the working of this particular gift. You also see that there's a certain... Literary device that I believe represents, and we'll talk about this a little more, that I believe represents, especially in miraculous powers, something a little bit distant from the way Christ operated. So Christ healed them all, and he healed them all with a touch. I believe what you see when Paul gets past the apostolic age slightly, it's not all the way through. But when he gets past the apostolic age and he asks for remedy for his ailments because he becomes sick or he leaves companions in ministry behind because they're sick. I believe that he is reliant upon the gifts of healing. Now that you know what it is. He's not waiting for someone to come and touch his cloak or to touch his head or to. Whittle some phrase together to get him to feel better. He's waiting for someone who would have the ailment. Or I'm sorry, the cure or the remedy for the ailment and who would understand how to do so based on the spirit's giving of the gift. Not based on some kind of training or school. But based on the spirit giving this gift for this purpose. Now you see how this is also tied to wisdom. But as I said, this is not the outlandish practices of the charismatic movement, nor is it true that all possess this gift or all or have a divine right to possess this gift. Rather, the spirit gave specific individuals this gift through the practice of listen to this remedies and cures, remedies and cures, things that would solve their issues. And you have to look at the historical context. Remedies and cures that would solve their issues in the church. And I believe if you're surrounded by a society who's persecuting you, as they were, and who wants to kill you because of your confession in Christ, you probably couldn't go to them to heal you when you're sick. You were identifiable so I believe the spirit gave these gifts to these individuals to remedy what could not be remedied for them in the construct that we find, the gift operative. It was the practice of remedies and cures that were always efficient. Listen to this. Always efficient and always effective in their context. Now, I believe this is what separates the gifts of healing from medicine practice in modern society or medicine practice in secular society. When the spirit gave the gift, healing was always the effect. Healing was always the effect. It was always efficient and always effective in the context. If you go to a doctor, that's not always true. You won't always be healed and you won't always have an effective remedy that's presented to you. Some may go to a doctor for an ailment and they may die. They may become sicker person to person. Now, I thank God for medical staff and medical practitioners, but that isn't that they're entrusted with the gifts of healing. Because it's always efficient and always effective in its context. The people were healed. The gift of healing speaks not to the cause, but to the effect. I'm telling you how the gift is practiced. The gift of healing is practiced through remedying ailments and providing cures the effect was always in the context of the church for those who operated the gift it was always effective and efficient how would they know that this gift was in practice because those who got sick were not only made well but it could be specifically said how they were made well and who was ultimately responsible certainly was Christ but you would know what was responsible in terms of from the temporal sense In the life of the church, how they got made well. So it's as I've said, it was always efficient and always effective in the context of possessing the gift. That's because we see perfection with the Holy Spirit. The gift here speaks of the effect rather than the healing as its own means. It speaks of the effect rather than healing as its own means. It's not simply to touch someone or say something to someone or slap someone. And they fall down, they get up and you say, you're healed. I'm not trying to mock anybody, but I'm saying that's typically what people say the gift looks like uh, looks like today. But this is actually treating people who are sick and they are made well all the time that this gift is in practice. But it is the effect. The effect is that they're made well from a remedy uh, to a cure uh, to uh, an illness or something that would bring about a, a fatality. That they're made well. And again, not all had this. And not all could lay claim to having this. And not all were made well. But those to whom this gift was affected upon, they were made well. The remedy or cure is provided. This is the helpful way to think about it. The remedy or cure is provided and the gift is healing. You see that? The remedy or cure is provided, and the gift is healing. Worked by the spirit, but through the hands of men. So it's by the spirit, through the hands of men. One way to know if the gift is truly operative, men don't receive glory for it. Spirit receives glory for it. God receives glory for it. Christ receives glory for it. And then even when we glory in the Spirit, the Spirit points us to Christ to worship him so the gift here speaks of that effect rather than healing as its own means. so much of what's practiced today and called healing it's for its own end or it's for some uh, fleshly desire to be promoted or for people to be stimulated or draw some attention and then the person's not really healed or they're not healed in perfection so then the remedy or cure is provided and the gift is healing And it brings honor to Christ and blessing to his body. Because if you're made well through the gift of healing, you can then continue to do the things that bring the value they need to the life of the church, such as edifying and building up. So then the consequence of treatment in the case whereby the spirit has given the gift is healing. That's why I say it's effect. It's an effect. That's the sense of it even in the Greek. It's an effect. It's the consequence of treatment not the consequence of slapping somebody on the head. It's not the consequence of you touching someone's garment. That happened. That happened in the messianic situation with Christ when he was here. That happened even in the early apostolic age. But then the gift begins to give way to what Paul is explaining here. So it was this remedy, this consequence of treatment in the case whereby the spirit has given the gift. It's healing to the one who has suffered ailment or illness. This is separated from societal talents. We were talking about it last time we were together, that a knowledge base that you study something and then you have the talent to perform it. That's a blessing, I believe, a common blessing to many who don't even know the God who blesses them with the talents they're given because we are fashioned and made in his likeness and image. But this is separated from those talents that people have in pharmacology and medical practice, even in the Greco-Roman Empire and their society. It's separated from that for some of the reasons I've named, but because they treat everybody and amongst the everybody they treat, they lose some. This is a gift specifically for the church where it's effective 100 percent of the time. Treatments and remedy in the societal context were not always effective and did not always produce healing at the perfect rate that the divine gift produced in the church. So here's the thing. If someone offered to treat somebody in that context in the church and that person was not made well, guess what? You're not seeing the gift of healing. And so I believe it's cessation – Is based on what you actually not only see, but by faith, what you have seen made manifest. It's not walking by sight to see if the gift is there. It's understanding what the gift is and then seeing if it's operative. If it's not operative in that context, then you're not seeing the gift distributed by the spirit. There's a contentment with what the spirit has distributed and understanding that perhaps the spirit has not distributed this gift in that way. I do believe it has given way to something else in the larger context. But again, that is not to say every church or every person received a gift. But when the gift was operative, it was accomplished by the power of the Spirit. That's important to note. By the power of the Spirit to work the result of healing in the one who suffered sickness. You would see it and you would see it in the life of the church and God would be honored for it. So I believe when we think about people being healed or not healed in the confines of modern medicine, which I'm so thankful for, I don't believe that it is related to the gift of healing. I believe it's that there have been advances that as God would have it, to a people who do not deserve anything but death, he has given them an opportunity to be treated for ailments and illnesses. Remember that the gifts do not point to themselves. The gifts authenticate the decrees and will of God. I believe that's what separates modern medicine and modern practice from what we see related to this gift. I think when people say, well, we have doctors in our church who remedy illnesses, who come up with cures. But ask yourself, are they only treating people in the Lord's church by the power of his spirit? Or are they practicing medicine? Whereas a common grace to all, they are then providing a service to people for a a nominal fee. I'm not against that practice. I think it's a beautiful practice. But we cannot say that that's the gift of healing. This was a very specific thing very specific people we move along very quickly uh, but I believe that you're starting to understand some of the distinctions I hope then in verse 10 Paul explained them to them the gift of miracles literally miraculous powers we end with this here this gift was a display of God's power operative in his church so you see as you think about this how it's related to other gifts the working of miracles from the one who was given the gift for the benefit of those who receive the gift i mentioned the literary device or figure of speech and this is called uh i want to pronounce this right metonymy metonymy is used to designate the association of something with something else you know an example i could think of is if you say the white house released a statement well no the white house didn't release a statement because a White House or building brick and mortar can't speak. The individuals in the White House released a statement. Metonymy makes an association to, to persons, but it is once removed. And so you see that in the association of mighty works or powers to the miracles related to themselves. This metonymy is used to stand for an institution or source. In other words, miracles are used not only for what they are, but the cause related to the effect. In other words, the miracles were not simply through the hands of men, whittling up something that was outside of the laws of, of, uh, of temporal existence. And then they do those things. And now we go, wow, that was a miracle. No, the miracles were tied to God. So more than that, miracles were used to associate the gift with the source. That's where metonymy comes in. That you weren't to simply look at the miracle, you were were to look at the source when the miracle was performed. So it was very much related. It was God himself who was on display. The, The miraculous power is given as a gift, but is demonstrated as a clear working of God's power in a given situation related to the church. In a given situation. This then would be understood as the rendering or giving of God's power to the one who possesses the gift. And you see this all throughout the early age. I think you see some of this in the prophets of old in the Old Testament. But you see it all throughout that particular age. The working of miraculous powers. Not sourced in the individual, but sourced in God and verifiable as such. So it's to perform this on behalf of another. Does God still perform miracles? Absolutely. But God performs the miracles. Now, one might argue, well, can men perform miracles? I would say it has to be made manifest. We have the right to ask, show me. Show me what it is the individual is doing. And then we can categorically define it as a gift or say that's not a gift. But it is the rendering or giving of God's power to the one who possesses the gift. I like the way it's said, because I'm going to get to that as we finish. It is to perform this on behalf of another. The use of that power. Listen to this. The use of that power to what God has specifically intended in that given circumstance. I think this gift is very much tied to some of the other gifts. And I think that this gift has an authentication element to it, similar to what prophecy is, that it it was needed to authenticate some things that had not been fully disclosed as of the time of this historical context. But I like what the text says. Look at verse 10. Read it carefully. It doesn't just say miracles, does it? What does it say? And to another, the effecting of miracles. The affecting of that is that is very key. That is a key phrase, and we'll end with it. The affecting of miracles. Listen to this. It is then the gift is not related to a person specifically. So it's not saying this person can do this. It's saying the miraculous power has for it a cause, and then its effect is on display. So therefore, the person. Who possesses the gift is simply an instrument. And so the miracles are related, I believe, to both cause and effect. The cause it's related to is the God who gave it. The effect is clearly seen and evident as it is practiced. This miraculous power that's on display for a specific circumstance in a specific context. The argument for whether it has continued or ceased is based on how it's defined. So you must ask yourself if that's the case. It's not I'm hoping to see it. It's have I seen it operated the way that it is? And the spirit brings honesty and sobriety to our hearts as we examine these gifts. If you have not seen it acting in the way it is, if you have not seen a person with actual miraculous power, I'm not saying people who are using all kind of effects. I'm not saying the use of magic because God forbids that use. I'm saying the working of miraculous powers, both in its cause, pointing to the source and its effect upon the people by decree and authenticated as such. If you have seen that, then the gift is operative. If you haven't seen it, then the, then we don't get to pretend. The gift has not been distributed by the spirit. I'm not saying you walk by sight. I'm saying you're seeing what's manifested by faith. Next time, we will examine the other gifts mentioned in verse 10. As we look at prophecy, distinguishing of spirits and tongues and its interpretation. Let's pray.